0: The scripture for today's sermon comes from 2 Peter 1, 3-11. The word of God speaks to us. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is God's word to us.
1: Good morning. Welcome to Frontline. If uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Jeff Nine. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, and it's great to be here. Uh, with you, um, I love it. This weekend was eventful. Uh, we moved our oldest into college, which so we're still. I don't know. You ask people have asked how you feel. I'm like I don't know yet. Uh, ask me in a month. We'll see. Um, but it was it was a lot of fun to see her uh, step into that, and um, and so yeah, I'm I'm a, a, uh, eager to, to to shift some gears this morning. Um, Hey, if you've been with us for the last year, you know we just finished up 1 Corinthians last week, that we've been walking through this book for a really long time. And, and if you've missed some of that, I encourage you to go back because what we don't want to do is leave what we learned in 1 Corinthians in the past. We want to pursue what does it look like to be that way in the future. And so what we're actually going to do is we're we're going to take the next three weeks, uh, we're going to start a new series um, in in, uh, in September on the book of Genesis, looking at Genesis 1 to 11, and a lot of what it is that God has has has. Has done through creation, how he has made us, what that, what that means for our lives. And it's going to be some incredible work this fall in the book of Genesis. Uh, but the next couple of weeks, what, what uh, Chad and, and Derek and I want to do is take a moment and go, in light of all the stuff we've walked through in 1 Corinthians, how can we as a church, Frontline Yukon, pursue faithfulness? God calls us to be a faithful people. That's what Paul was calling the church at Corinth to be: is to be a faithful people. How can? What does it look like for us to pursue faithfulness? So the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at that. So I'm going to ask you to pray for me. I want to pray for you um, because I'm I'm not interested in us uh, doing some kind of game where I give a TED talk and you go, it was okay, and then go to brunch and we forget it. Like I actually am asking that God would change us. He would change us. So God, will you do that? Spirit of God, would you work? We're not interested in exchanging information. We're interested in being a people that look like you. That are transformed into your image. People that live live like family in deep and profound ways. So would you shape our character? Would you forgive us for our failings? Would you strengthen us where we are weak? And would you lead us in the way of Jesus, I pray? Jesus' name. Amen. I love art museums. Not because I'm an art critic. I'm not. Not because uh, I actually know what I'm talking about. I know the pieces I like, and I know the pieces I think are garbage. But I I like art museums, and and part of the reason is I often find myself, not maybe with every piece, but I find myself going, I wonder what the image was that that person had in in their brain and in their heart when they created it. You see, because art is is an attempt, at least good art, is an attempt to express what's beautiful, to express beauty, to to take this elusive idea of beauty and transfer it into something that we can interact with. It's to take the idea of beauty and give it embodiment, to give it embodiment. You see, art isn't just an idea and it's not just an expression, it's an expression of the beautiful. I think art points to human's longing for transcendence. Even those that would not claim any kind of religious faith or religious belief are longing for something that transcends what we what we experience on the day-to-day basis. There's this idea of beauty that that's beyond us that we're that we're drawn to. I think art points to our longing to encounter transcendence but at the very moment that we're doing that we're living in an age that's trying to push eclipse that's trying to push the idea of the transcendent out of you Charles Taylor in his brilliant book A Secular Age talks about the fact that our age our culture all moment right now is 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 experiencing what he calls the eclipse of the transcendence the the eclipse of the transcendent. This idea that when an eclipse happens, one object obscures your view of another object. In other words, what we've, we live in a world in which we are so consumed by the things around us that we can no longer see transcendence beyond. The eclipse of the transcendent. We may dismiss God. We may redefine transcendence as mere human excellence, but we find ourselves pulled, I think, apart at the core, pulled apart at the core. So here's a question I have for us today. What does it look like for us, as particularly those of us that are followers of Jesus, what does it look like for us to engage this secular age, this moment in which we are experiencing the eclipse of the transcendent? I think there's a few dynamics that are actively in work, at work in our culture that we often miss. So I want to focus on two dynamics the, uh, two dynamics that I think are at work around us even if we miss them. And the first is this. The first is the, 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 the dynamic of disintegration, of disintegration. You see, fundamental to this idea of the secular age becomes this, when, when I push the idea of the transcendent away, I end up finding myself fall apart at the middle, that there, there's nothing to actually hold myself together, and we begin to separate off one part of ourself from another part. We end up disintegrating what should be connected. We separate what's in our head from what's in our heart. We know things, we love things, and we tr- treat them as completely different set of, set of categories. We separate our public life from our private life. I'll put a mask on, I'll show you that I'm polite, but see me, see me back in the alley and it's not going to be so polite. I separate public from private. We live in a cultural moment in which we are, we are pushed and forced to, to separate our spirituality from quote-unquote real life. Live your life Monday to, Monday to Friday, Monday to Saturday. That's your time, you do whatever that, that you want to with that. But then give God a little bit in the middle, give him your Sunday morning, then go to brunch and it's back on your time. Separate the spiritual from the real life. And I think here's another one that's really fundamental to this. We separate our actions from our longings, our passions, our desires. In other words, we act like what we long for doesn't affect what we do. We disintegrate the two and treat them as separate objects. I think when we move, take this move of disintegration, when we fall into this dynamic of disintegration, it will lead inevitably to a certain kind of moralism and a certain kind of legalism. I want to show you what I mean by looking at Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58. This is, this is a, a chapter in Isaiah where God is calling ancient Israel to see some things they weren't seeing in themselves. You see, the the, the nation of Israel at this moment was doing all kinds of religious things. They were engaged in lots of religious activity. They were doing the right things, and they were affirming the right things, but there was something wrong. There was something off. And so God says through the mouth of Isaiah this to Israel, cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet declare to my people their transgression to the house of Jacob their sins. You're like, oh boy, here comes the list. But we might be kind of shocked by what happens in verse two because verse two he says, hey, they seek me daily. You're like, well, that doesn't sound like sin. And they delight to know my ways. You're like, that sounds good. As if they're a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of God. They ask me for righteous judgments. They delight and draw near to God. They say, why have we fasted and you, God, have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Then listen to this. He says, behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and fight and to hit with the wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is such a fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? You see, here's what he's saying. You're doing all the right things, and yet your heart's far from me. You've disintegrated what's going on in here with what you're doing out here. Man, if there's an indictment on the American church today, it's this. We have a form of godliness. We do these things. We look spiritual. I, put, I mean, I put on a polo today. I'm looking nice. For me, that's dressed up if you don't know me. But my heart, far from God. You see, they thought they could love God with activity without loving Him with their heart. And then they thought they could love God without loving those that he had created. And God says, no, you can't disintegrate these two things. This legalism isn't just religious, though, friends. It shows up in the secular world all the time. Just look at the culture wars. Do these things, say these things, or else you're our enemy. We've created a standard of activity. I don't care what you do in your bedroom. I don't care what you do in private. I don't care what you do when you're not online. But when you're in public, you act like this and you say these things. If not, you're canceled. This is our moment. It's a a legalism that plays itself on our culture that actually leads to the privatization of the self. I'm gonna live this way privately. That's segmented off from my public life. This is all the work of disintegration. There's a second dynamic at play, though, I think. The second dynamic at play here is, I'm gonna steal a phrase from Charles Taylor. He calls it excarnation, excarnation. We've heard the word incarnation. It shows up when we talk about Advent every year, that God himself, that the, the God takes on human flesh. What Taylor says is that in a, in a secular age, we actually have tried to, where, where the divine has come down and taken on human flesh, we try to take the divine and push him out of our everyday life. We try to excarnate the world. I think this is what Paul's getting at briefly in, in Romans chapter 1. Look with me here, Romans 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, Who, by their unrighteousness, listen to this, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In those things in which He that that have been made, so they are without excuse. He's saying these things, the divine is on display particularly in Jesus, but also in creation, that God has, has taken the transcendent, or as the transcendent one has, has invaded our plane, our world, and put his power on display. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, listen, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. They have exchanged the the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. In other words, this idea that God has come down in flesh in Jesus so that when I behold Jesus, I behold God. We're going to push him out of view and replace him with the image of us. I'm smart. I'm strong. Look at me. And we simply elevate the human while eclipsing the divine. Friendline Yukon, we're not immune from these two dynamics. We're just not. They are subtle and they are often working behind the scenes in ways we don't see. But I want you to listen to me. We're not immune from them. We are affected by these dynamics of disintegration and excarnation in ways that I don't think we recognize. We are shaped by the liturgies of our world. We are shaped by the voices of our world. We are shaped by, listen to this, the assumptions of our world. The ways that concepts of the world, enter into our vocabulary in ways that it just feels like we're just talking, it's just normal. It's just, it's just normal. It's not normal. It's not normal. These, this work of disintegration, this work of excarnation is not normal, and I want us to not be naive. We are all being affected by the dynamics of disintegration and excarnation. So that's been cheery. Does Christianity have a response? Does the Christian faith have a response to these two dynamics? Yes. Just in case there was suspense. Don't know. Is there? Is there? Yes, there is. The Bible gives us a different vision. In the place of the idea or the concept of disintegration, Christianity gives us the idea of integration. We are holistic beings and we live holistic lives, Whether I try to separate out what I want from what I do and try to act like they're two separate categories, to act like I can be moral over here and and know that there's a bunch of junk in my heart over here and not touch it. Like that idea, we know that's not true. They're connected. Those things that are in your heart eventually are going to show up. Can I get an amen? Put enough pressure on this soul and the worst of me comes out. This is, I think, what Jesus is getting at in Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are trying to get Jesus in trouble, and they keep failing. Uh, They realize that they silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. They're trying to find a way to dismiss Jesus, to to excarnate, to push him away. Teacher, verse 36, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Done. (laughs) No, no, he didn't stop there, did he? He didn't say, hey, just love him with the, the spiritual time of your week. Like, no, no, no. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Every part of you. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. I think what Jesus is getting at here is two different ways in which uh, um, uh, integration works in us. The first is integration of being. You are a holistic being, body, mind, soul, strength. All of you is one, unified, you can't separate out one part of you and follow Jesus with that part and then leave this over here to just do whatever you want. You don't can't do that. You are integrated in your very being. But he's getting at a second work of integration, and that's the integration of your love. He makes it very clear here that you're to love God and to love others. And if you look at any of Jesus' other teachings, you'll realize he says that those two are linked. You can't truly love others if you don't love God, and you can't truly love God if you don't also love Love others. So to confront the idea of disintegration is the biblical concept of integration. But to concept excarnation, I'm going to let you take a wild guess on what confronts that. And that is the biblical concept of incarnation. But I want to make it very, very clear. Incarnation is not something we do. It's only something Jesus does. To incarnate is that God himself takes on human flesh. We don't get to do that. We're not divine beings. We're not divine goodness. That doesn't apply to us. He took on human flesh and dwelt among us. And as such, as he walks this earth, he points us to transcendence. He he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Incarnation. Look at John chapter 1. Starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word what? What? was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, let's skip to verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. You see, our age wants to say, yeah, Jesus can be a teacher. He can be an an inspired prophet, but he can't be God. And the scriptures are very clear. No, 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 this is God in flesh. When you see Jesus, when you read the pages of the New Testament and you see what he did and what he said, you are beholding the actions and the words and the presence of God himself. The transcendent is not eclipsed in Jesus. It is put on display. I think, though, these two dynamics lead us to a particular calling, though. As we move towards these, this, this idea of integration, and as we, we behold uh, the, the incarnation of Jesus, it leads us, I think, to a, to a movement that God calls us to, and this is where I want us to focus the rest of our time, is the idea of embodiment, the idea of embodiment, that we are to not just act out in a, in a wear a mask kind of a sense, but actually to put flesh to ideas of Godliness, goodness, righteousness, holiness, joy. We are to actually embody joy. Why? Because God has given it to us to enjoy and to embody in the world. We are to embody goodness. Why? Because God is good and he calls us to be like him. He calls us to reflect him. He calls us to embody that in the world around us. He calls us to embody justice in the world. To not just talk about terms. We're not talking about an artist that had an idea and then left the canvas or left the clay on the side and went and just had an idea no they actually expressed it christian faithfulness means that we take these things that god has given us and we express them we embody them in the world but how you might ask let's ask peter i love first and second peter for these particular reasons peter talks very explicitly that he's writing to a church that's in exile in other words, they're not, they're not holding on the, 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 the reins of power. They're not in control. They're not the dominant cultural force around them. They're exiles. They're, they're citizens of heaven walking around the streets of, of Rome and, and other nearby nation states, living a life very different from the world around them. And that's why I love coming back to First and Second Peter to say, Peter, what would you say to us in a cultural moment like what we're walking through. So let's look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. "'His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises.'" So that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Now, I wish I would love to spend way more time than we have capacity this morning in these verses. I, I really wish we, we could. But I want to point your attention to three, three words. And, and, and like a good pastor, they all start with P. I mean, I didn't write it. Peter wrote it. But I'm going to take advantage of it. Power power. He says this, that his, God's divine power has granted to us all things. Can we just stop right there and go, it doesn't always feel like it, does it? But it's true. God's not holding out on you. He's not holding out on you. You may want him to work a particular way in a particular moment, but he's working in you and through you, maybe in ways you're not aware of, but it's not because he lacks the power or he's withholding his power. He has granted to us all the things that we need by his power, everything we need for life and godliness. The second thing, promises. He has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Let's just remember, God is not just a promise maker. He's a promise keeper. He keeps his promises. The third P word, partakers. That through these things, this power and these promises, you may become partakers. Listen to this. In the divine nature, I don't even understand that. That's like so transcendent and beyond my capacity to even get my head around. That somehow we might partake in the divine but I want it. But towards what end, he tells us, that he has given us this power, he's given us this promise, he's brought us in as partakers of the divine nature. Why? It says here in verse four, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. See, what, what, what the Bible tells us from beginning to end is that sin is killing us. Sin is destroying us. Sin is corrupting us. From Genesis 3 and the first sin of Adam and Eve till now, sin is the thing that's eating at our souls. He's trying to save us from that. He's trying to rescue us from that. He wants to deliver us from that, but how? Luckily, he's not done. Look at verse 5. For this very reason, because of all this, friends, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Frontline Yukon, we are called to embody these seven things. Let's hit them quickly. Virtue. This is not merely about doing right things. It's not simply about knowing right things. It's about being righteous that we actually embody these virtues these, these 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 it's even so hard to put your head around what is this virtue these these things that are godlike that we're called to inhabit we're called to embody we're called to not just do right things or say right things but to be made right to be virtuous to add to our virtue knowledge this isn't mere data friends this isn't scientism This is knowledge of God, knowledge of the divine, experiential understanding of who he is. Add to your virtue, knowledge. And add to your knowledge, third, self-control. Disciplining your life matters. Paul will say, I beat my body into submission, a little extreme maybe, but he says, I, I discipline myself like an athlete that I might run the race. I, I, I'm disciplining myself because I, I know that there are things that are, that are coming after me. Sin wants to destroy me and, I, and it takes effort and it takes self-control to, to, to hold these things at bay. Add to, your, to knowledge, self-control, and add to your self-control steadfastness. I, I want, friends, for us to be a steadfast people. And the reason I want that because hard things are coming. I don't know what those hard things are going to be. Maybe you're in the middle of that right now. You're in the middle of the hard thing right now. Steadfastness is something that God gives us as a gift to hold us. It doesn't mean we feel steadfast. Let me assure you, sometimes when you're standing steadfast in a storm, you feel the push and pull of the storm and you don't feel stable But we're asking God to build in us steadfastness, resolve to stand in the midst of storms. Add to steadfastness godliness. He calls us to be holy as he's holy. He calls us to reflect him in godliness. And add to your godliness brotherly affection. Guys, the call of community is not because we have a community director that needs to get paid and needs to justify his job. We want to be a people of community because God has called us together to be family because of brotherly affection. To move towards one another. Not in a passive love. But cultivating, listen, affection. There will be people in the church that annoy you. And I'm probably one of them. <laughs> I got one amen out of pocket today. We are called to cultivate affection for one another, to move towards one another as family and as friends. And lastly, that add to this, love. We're called to love God and love others. You see, the call of, of, of this, this idea of embodiment of these things is that not just that we might know the right things, say the right things, do the right things, but that we might become the kind of people that embody righteousness, So what does this look like? As we start with that question, I want to go to Matthew and, ask, and look at an encounter that Jesus has with the Pharisees around him. Because I think there's a warning in here for us. There's a warning in here for us that we need to take heed of. You see, Jesus was doing ministry among a, uh, a deeply religious people, and he was often confronting and, and interacting with the, the religious leaders of his day. And at one of these moments, he's confronting the scribes and the Pharisees, which were um, the, the, uh, the religious leaders, the, the, the pastors, say, of their day. These were people that were praised by the people around them, lifted up by the rest of the pe- people around them. They would have gotten the retweets, or is it a re now? I don't even know. Retweets, repost, I don't know. They, they, would, have got, they would have been the people that are, that are on the stages, on the YouTube clips. These would have been the people to go, hey, have you read the book by so-and-so? These are, these are the people that people looked up to. And look at what Jesus' words to them are in chapter 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First clean the inside, first, listen. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside might also be clean. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful. Fresh paint job. You look great, man. got a haircut? I did, thank you. But within are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. So you also ought to appear righteous, or so you also outwardly appear righteous to others. But within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This, friends, is why, why Peter is so focused on not just doing right things, but being made right—to embody virtue, to embody faithfulness. Let's not rush past this, friends. Let's let this work be on us. Where are those areas that we are hypocrites? Don't rush past that question. Let's see where Peter continues. Look at verse 10 because Peter's not done. He tells us to put these things on. He calls us to embody these seven things as followers of Jesus, but he's not done yet. Look at verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, they will be richly provided provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The first thing Paul calls them to do is to be diligent to confirm their calling and their election. Be diligent to confirm. I want to point out a little vocab lesson. Confirm is not create. You don't create your election. You don't create your calling. You don't generate it. You don't earn it. You don't purchase it. You confirm what's been granted. You don't save yourself by being, by putting on virtue, and then putting on knowledge and then putting on self-control. You don't, you don't earn salvation that way, friends. By doing those things, you're simply confirming God's at work in me. His election, his, his salvation, his work of saving me. Election is his work, not mine. He creates, we confirm. The second is this, that we are called to embrace liturgical formation. Now we if you're familiar with the word liturgy at all, you may think, well, is that like just a Sunday thing? Is that the, the fact that we pray then and then we give it? No, no, no. Liturgies are rhythms of life. There's a liturgy to what we do on Sundays, yes, but there's a liturgy to what we do in community groups. There's a liturgy to how we live our lives daily. We are living in the world of liturgies. James K. Smith talks about the liturgy of the mall, that when you go to the mall, you're actually taught things. You're formed a particular way to see the world. Liturgies are those rhythms and actions of life that form the way we see the world and form the way we live in the world. And that what we are to do is embrace particular liturgical formations. You see, what we do, friends, shapes who we are. And who we are shapes what we do. It's reciprocal. It's not, do I do the thing or be the thing? It's that I do the thing in order to be the thing, and I am the thing, so I do the thing. Liturgy forms us. It changes us. it, It shapes us. There's intentionality to this. I love the fact that Paul's telling us to pursue these things. He's not just, hey, go to your room, wait for the mail to show up. There's an Amazon Prime package dropping in with your calling, and you're good. He says, pursue these things. Do these things. Be diligent to do these things. We embrace liturgical formation. But third, friends, is this. We have to learn how to embrace in the gift of God. Let's go back to verses 3 and 4. Peter says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. I want you to notice the fact that twice he uses this word granted because it's not something you grasp and earn, he gives it. So if at any point in this you're like, I'm not the kind of person I want to be take heart. He's not done with you. And take heart. It's not yours to procure. He's not saying, hey, go become more powerful. Hope you're more wise. Good luck. I've granted to you all things. He has given us, friends, our justification. That simply is a fancy theological word for saying this, that we are a sinful people that God, that through Jesus, because of his death, burial, and resurrection, he will forgive us of all those sins, and we stand before God as just, even though in, our, in ourselves we're unjust, and we've all done, done things worthy of rebuke from God, and will do things worthy of rebuke from God, but we stand assured before God as one just, not because of our work, but because of Jesus' work. We are given our justification, but we are also given our sanctification. He doesn't say, Hey, I saved you. Now you better live up to it. He says, By my spirit, I am walking with you to teach you the ways of Jesus. He's forming us by his spirit, actively changing us into the image of Jesus. It's a gift. He's at work in our lives to make us look more like Jesus, the gift of sanctification. And then there's another gift coming, and that's the gift of glorification. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we we're in 1 Corinthians 15, that God says that he will take what is corruptible, our flesh, our, our personhood, uh, that, that, the, the part that's corruptible, and he will transform it into incorruptibility. I don't even understand what that means fully, but I want it. And It's not something I earn. It's not like, hey, do enough good things and he'll give you that gift later. He says, this is a gift, it's coming. It's in the mail, it's assured. I promise it. Friends, it's because he has given these things that we can move towards embodying these things. So for those of you in the room, maybe you're not a a follower of Jesus. Man, I'm so glad you're here. So glad you're here. You're welcome to everything we do. I'd love to, if you have questions or things that you're processing, I'd love to talk with you about them. We can do it today. We can do it later this week. But here's what I want to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to press in because I want you to understand these gifts of God are not given to, to every single person apart from the work of Jesus. They're given through faith for those that have trusted Jesus. These gifts are given to all who trust Jesus to be their Savior. And if that's not where your faith is, then these promises actually aren't for you. But they're offered to you. And Jesus would say, come and receive freely these gifts. For those of us that are followers of Jesus in the room, I just want you to spend a second and ask the Lord what, what it is that he's pushing you towards right now. Maybe it's one of these seven things that Peter calls us to embody, and you're like, yeah, I actually don't, do, I actually don't embody that one Maybe there's some other thing that he's challenged you in. But here's what I want to say, friends. The only way we can pursue faithfulness as a church is to honestly own those things and move towards them in the grace that Jesus gives. Let's not just sit back, cross our arms, and hope for faithfulness. Let's pursue it. Let's pursue it. Would you pray with me?